Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today, before we begin, I'd like to thank our generous sponsors. Ian and Sarah Magad are dedicating today's class in honor of the birth of a new grandson. May he be entered into the covenant of Avram Avinu, Beito Ubizmano, in its proper time this Friday morning. And may they have much nachas from this grandchild and from all of their grandchildren. We should hear good news and we should share good news, Yemir Tzashem. As we say, Tev Hanigla, a good that is open and revealed, a good that can easily be seen as such and doesn't require a leap of faith. And we'll be talking about that later on in this episode. Before I begin to actually teach to delve into the third chapter of the Shara B'tochen. I want to tell you that I believe this particular episode is going to be one of the most foundational. What, what seems on the surface to be a casual reading, just of the opening few sentences of the third chapter, on the surface, it doesn't even seem to be saying anything. But I can tell you that after careful study and many, many hours of contemplation and research, I think that I have discovered something absolutely extraordinary. And that the great Rabbeinu Bechaya, in just a few pithy words, a few small sentences, is conveying to us an incredible volume of profundity, a remarkable truth that perhaps has only been understood in the last two centuries. So with no further ado, let's move forward into the third chapter. And we'll do so by taking a quick look at where we've come from. So in the Kahat edition, the summary of the second chapter reads as follows. Having studied everything we did in the second chapter. So at this point, we know that Hashem, God alone, possesses all of the qualities, seven in total, the things that are considered to be prerequisite for commanding complete and absolute trust contemplating these very ideas, according to what's written here, will bring a person to a full reliance on God. In other words, this summary seems to be saying, contemplate and think about what we've learned. And if you'll properly appreciate and understand what's been articulated in the second chapter, you'll be able to fully rely on Hashem, you'll give your life over to God and you'll be accepting of all of God's decrees. Great. Sounds like we've completed laying the seven-layer foundation and we're prepared to begin to build the actual structure of betachen. Or so it would seem. When you take a look at the introductory words of the third chapter of Shara Betochen, so they wrote, 
In the first part of this chapter, the author lists and elaborates five concepts that a person must properly understand and believe fully in order to have proper trust in God. All right. Without looking inside, I would assume that we're going to be learning about five new concepts. So there are five concepts that I have to properly understand in order to build the structure. So the foundation's been laid. We know about the requisites for trust. We also know they can only be found in God. Okay, a couple of uh, things that'll help us to build that structure. Five components. I guess we're getting the, the building blocks to begin to actually develop our structure. I mean, uh, a simple recap from the very beginning of this Sefer, as we've learned it, following the very long Psicha, the introduction to Betochen. In chapter 1, Betochen was defined as relying on this proverbial provider, whoever that might be, with absolute blissful commitment. No worries in the world. Full reliance. Absolute confidence. And then, in chapter 2, we described the qualities that would be necessary to inspire that kind of absolute confidence. Great. Okay. So now we'll just pick up a couple of additional elements that are necessary for building Arbitachin structure. Right? Well, actually wrong. (laughs) Although that would have been the anticipated or expected continuation of Shara B'tochen. Let me begin from the words of the great Rabbeinu B'chayi himself. Ach. This is okay. Before we go forward, there's a but. There's a but. Ha'ak There's going to be some prefacing. Some more prefacing. We're not yet ready. Okay, I thought we got seven qualities. We're ready to invest our confidence, our trust. In fact, Rabbeinu B'chayi himself, in the conclusion of the second chapter, said, and I quote, When you have clarity about everything I've told you, well, obviously clarity takes discussion and contemplation. You have to think things through and share it with somebody else. You have like a kind of give and take in a discussion, and it sharpens everybody's mind, just like in the parable when you have two knives and you kind of sharpen one against the other. You have two minds or multiple minds and you have this conversation. Everybody reads things and grasps them or understands them just slightly differently. So everybody comes together with their different ideas and they say, okay, we can, uh, we can relate to this. This is reasonable. Sounds right. When you become strong in your recognition, solid in your understanding that Hashem is the source of all of this, what happens then? Well, then in that case, you're ready to put your trust in Him. You must say, love. You can, so to speak, give yourself over to God. And yet, Rabbeinu B'chayi says we have a couple of prefaces that are yet necessary. And here he uses two words which heretofore have never yet appeared in this particular book. These are new words. 
in words that the commentaries raise their eyebrows over. The words are, it's not just hakdomis. It's not just a couple of ideas, a few more prefaces, some more building blocks or construction material for us to populate, properly formulate this betachen uh, structure or development of the trust psyche. The hakdamis, asher through and with which, beveruron vaamitatan. The word beruran is a permutation of the word barur. Barur in Hebrew means to be clear, crystal clear, no confusion, no conflating of differing entities, ideas, concepts, clarity, perfect clarity. Clarity is not so easily found these days. There's a lot of confusion. People conflate things inappropriately, kind of lash things together for various reasons other than that which is logically necessary. You know, they may have their own personal issues, access to grind, political considerations. It's not, it's not like pure. So. We need to have clarity. This needs to be pure. We need to know exactly what we are and are not talking about. We didn't really use this terminology before. But what's really interesting is the word va'amitatan and their truth. So through their clarity, we used that word before, and through their truth, this particular, so to speak, coming together, it's through their clarity and through their truth. This will enable a person to complete his or her trust in God. So we're looking for clarity and truth. Clarity and truth and the prefaces, which we are going to have to grasp with clarity and truth, or we're going to have to have a clear grasp of them and appreciate the profound truisms. Hein chomish, there are five. <laughs> now, I just want to say that at this point, we don't, we don't see any, anything strange necessarily. Okay, it's five more prefaces. We learned about seven requisite qualities, and now we're going to learn about five more details. Yet, Immediately we have commentary from the Neder Bakodesh. He says, what does this mean? What does this mean? What is, what is the author looking for when he says, now we're looking for clarity and truth? What Rabbeinu Bechaya meant to say here was, Im yitbararu if these will become clear, if they will become embraced by the heart as true, they will prove true in a person's heart, 
Yushlam Bitchoinoi Be'elikim Levadai. Then, and only then, will faith and trust in Hashem be developed in their fullest sense. And in the fullest sense means Be'elikim Levadai. Trust is a sum zero game in God and God alone. So I read these words, and I asked myself a simple question. Is the truth to be found in our hearts? Or is the truth to be found in our minds? So let me explain what I'm getting at. The heart is the seat of the emotions. The mind, that's the platform of our intelligence. With my heart, I relate to others. I'm either drawn or seeking closeness to others. I'm attracted to others. We would call that chesed, or I want to give, I want to cleave or touch, I want to be in the presence of things that make me happy, things that make me feel good. And then there are things that I wish to avoid. It doesn't mean they're objectively bad, they're not good for me. The way we identify emotional characteristics. In Torah Hebrew is amida. Amida means a measure. It's my measure of things. It's the way I size things up. You may not like my friends. You don't have to. They're not your friends. I need to like my friends. You may not love my spouse. That's okay. I need to love her. It doesn't mean that somebody is intrinsically beloved if they are beloved to somebody. It means they are beloved to them. There might be people who are universally beloved. Might. I'm not so sure it's common. And if you see somebody universally beloved, you tend to ask questions because the truth hurts. And if somebody manages to appeal to everybody, do they stand for anything? Do they actually represent anything which is immutable? Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't so much loved by the Jewish people. <laughs> it's painful to speak about this. Aaron's funeral was twice as large. Aaron had an easier job, if you will. He was the prince of the people. He was engaged in their everyday lives. He was trying to make peace amongst them. That was his task. He was the Kohen. As a Kohen, he was supposed to be a beacon of love. But somebody had to be the leader. And leadership requires brutal honesty. Leadership requires tenacity. Leadership necessarily means that difficult decisions will have to be made. 
what's good for the goose is not always good for the gander. And the leader has to be worried about everybody's welfare. Moshe's emet. Moshe emet. Torah to emet. Not everybody loves the Torah. Not everybody loved Moshe. In his absence, they yearned for him and missed him. They missed that guidance and that clarity. They missed the discipline. But they didn't necessarily love Moshe Rabbeinu. He loved the nation. He loved the people. Not all of the people responded in kind. Because he's the truth. What I mean to say is that when we speak about emotions, when we speak about the way we feel and maybe our truth, it may be how I feel about something. I may be attracted to something or repelled from something. I may wish to stay far away from a particular person or concept or experience. I don't like it. I detest it. That's my right. We'd all do well to stay away from people who bring out the worst in us. If you know that whenever you meet with somebody you end up locking horns, why bother meeting? A greater lover than Abraham you'll never find, and he separated from Lot. It was an untenable situation. He didn't stop loving him, he just couldn't like him. They couldn't live together. So they moved on. Things like this happen. Emotions are subjective. By definition, emotions have to be subjective. Because, as they say in modern day Hebrew, al hatam ve'al hareach, ein ma lehit you can't really argue about something's taste or aroma. Some people like an aroma, some people don't. And my kids say, it's not my taste. It's not my taste. Delicious. It's your delicious for you. It's not delicious for me. When we speak about things from a cerebral perspective, we can identify objective truths. We could say this is objectively good or that's objectively bad. <laughs> you may not like it. You may not love it. It may not excite you. And you can still accept the fact that it is a universal or axiomatic truth. So I'm reading these words. Yizbararu. Yizbararu means clarity. Let me tell you what's not clear. Let me tell you what's not clear. Suppose a person embraces something and he or she thinks that they're embracing this because they're righteous, because they're good, because, you know, they believe that it's the right thing. But what if they have some kind of interest? What if there's something that's influencing their decision? And it's not true anymore. This is at the root of the biblical prohibition of, of a judge accepting any kind of bribery or flattery or favors. Because justice, as they say in the vernacular, must be blind. 
That's why in the justice icon, we have a blindfolded woman holding a scales. Because if I have a vested self-interest, I can no longer be a judge of the truth. Part of birur, part of clarity is to be able to pick apart the things that are of interest to me and the things that are objectively true. So if you're looking for the truth, oftentimes the wisest thing to do is to find the party who isn't privy or party to your issues. What we would call an objective entity, an objective perspective. We do that levarer, to clarify. I've had situations where I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if I was making a decision because I was doing the right thing or because maybe it was expedient for me. Maybe in my subconsciousness there was some kind of old score to settle. Without fail, in each of these, let's just call them gray situations, I'd seek out an objective arbiter, somebody who doesn't have my vested interest and say, look, I think I have a vested interest. What do you think? Wouldn't you want to do that if you're looking for the truth? In other words, the truth is not found in our hearts. <laughs> my uncle Lebel of Shalom used to say, a hergish is kemal netum gerecht, he used to say. A, a feeling is never wrong. This doesn't mean it's right either. It's a feeling. People have feelings. He passed away tragically more than two decades ago. He was light years ahead of his time where today people govern everything by how do they feel about it. How I feel about something is not relevant. I mean, it's relevant that we should be respectful of people's feelings, but that's not the arbiter of truth. I feel that way. Okay, you feel that way. That's nice. It has no bearing on what everybody else has to do or say. We should be looking for the truth. And yet the Nadab HaKadosh says, he uses exactly the opposite terminology. And the more I thought about this, the more confused I became. He says these things have to become absolutely crystal clear. They have to become settled, hardened as a truth. You like, have to identify with this truth. It's almost like step out of yourself to identify with something greater than you. With an axiom. An objective truth. And where is this belief Adam in a person's heart? Belief Adam, a person's heart is probably the least honest broker. And that's going to lead us to betachen and Hashem? Seriously? We're going to follow what people feel? Because as long as it's my feeling and as long as I feel clear about this and, and, and it's true to me, so the true to me becomes source of betochen in God? The ultimate source of everything? Seriously? 
Now, these are, these are great people. They didn't make uh, callous mistakes, chas v'shalom. The reason that I'm framing it as what seems to be untoward or inappropriate is because I wish to highlight my clear misunderstanding of what he's saying. The way I understand these words, they're making no sense. So I'm sharing that with you. We're studying this together. What's, what's the next step? Well, the next step is to find out, so what is he actually saying? Because this, this, this rabbi didn't make mistakes like that. If he said something, he knew what he was saying. <laughs> the question is, can we figure that out? Let me take it to the Pas Lechem. And one of the noteworthy things is, you know, the Pas the Lechem commentary in the previous chapter, he was our stalwart. Every time Rabbeinu Bechayas seemed to have repeated himself, the Pas Lechem was there for us. He said, no, 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 it looks like redundancy. It's not. There are multiple things that are being addressed. And Rabbeinu Bechaya, in his classic way, as Yehudi Ibn Tibbin rendered his words into Hebrew, would address multiple issues with slightly nuanced or different verbiage. And yet here, he doesn't address it. Doesn't seem to address it at all, in fact. But he does say something very interesting. He comments on the words crystallizing, clarifying. Bibeirurun, through the process of clarification. Kishiyavinam alburyum, when this will be properly understood, and proper understanding means to understand what something is and what it isn't. To be able to understand something exclusively rather than inclusively, because an inclusive understanding is an inaccurate understanding, whereas an exclusive understanding enables you to have perfect clarity. Let me give you a rather lame but simple example. Suppose somebody was to see a screwdriver for the first time in his life. And he says, I don't understand. What is that implement? What is that tool? It doesn't look effective in hammering a nail. And you explain to this person the technology known as a screw. Sharp edges, soft wood, or a hole drilled in metal of a certain diameter, which allows the screw to be threaded into place. But because it's threaded into place, thread after thread after thread, as the screw turns, depending on how deep that screw goes, this is going to be very powerfully embedded into the softer wood or very powerfully attached to the metal. And the metal might be thick in its diameter with multiple threads. And each thread becomes yet another set of teeth holding on to this bolt. Now there are different 
at least that I know of, and I'm not much of a carpenter, there are at least three different heads on the top of screws today. There's a, a square head, or I guess what they call a plus, or a or minus. So if I say, well, the screwdriver is a screwdriver. I, got the, I figured it out. I understand now. You explained it to me. A nail just drives something with force into another substance, so it becomes embedded. The nail is embedded in the wood, but the screw doesn't actually just force itself in. It kind of creates these multiple layers in which the wood or the metal with fits a prefabbed hole are able to actually hold on on every thread, there's a, yet another hold. It's a much, much more powerful way of putting things together. And of course, screwing metal together in something which is prefed is a much more powerful way than simply hammering wood together or even screwing the wood together. So if I don't, I didn't realize that there are different heads and different screws and that there are different kinds of screws. There are flat screws and pointed screws and pointy screws are good for wood and flat screws are good for metal. And I didn't realize any of this. I just figured out the screws. So to me, it's all the same. I'm not much of a carpenter. I don't know. Say, so, oh yeah, I just screw that in. Never touched a screwdriver. I don't know. I never put two things together. I never was involved in any kind of carpentry or construction. Do I have a clear understanding of how the screwdriver works? Well, clearly not. Because in my muddled perspective, it's inclusive. All screw heads are inclusive. I'm lumping them all together, but it doesn't actually work that way. There are reasons to have the different screw heads, and, and the, they, they work on different sort of arenas in different ways, giving you a different grip. And there's a reason why they make screws one way or the other. So I need to have not an inclusive understanding, which means just a broad general understanding, but I have to have an exclusive understanding, understanding the specifics of this particular thing. Now, this is a very silly metaphor that even a child can easily grasp. The point I'm trying to make is that we have to understand something well. And as Paslechem says, Bibeiruran, in its clarity, means to understand something alburium, to understand it really well. To understand it, to grasp it fully, means clarity. You know what something is and what something isn't. A person would say to you, well, if you have A or B, can't you do D? And you say, no, because A works for A. And, but they all kind of work. Ernest, isn't it all kind of the same? As people often say to me when they're ignorant about Jewish ritual, isn't it all kind of just like, you know, holy stuff, ritual stuff? Shouldn't it all just one or the other? And the answer is no. No. The head filling and not the hand filling. It's different. What do you mean it's different? They're different. Very different. The very definition of these mitzvahs is different. The Torah uses different words to describe it. Different actions are It's different. As much as they're the same, they're different. That's why they're two separate mitzvahs. So when you understand something aburium, when you understand something really well, then its truth will become embedded in your heart. In other words, Paslechem is kind of separating between the Beiruron and the Amitasan. 
<laughs> he doesn't come as previously and say, hey, there's a redundancy. It's not redundant, actually. It's different. He says, birur is cerebral. Emet, yit'amet, you identify with its truth, for you to identify in your heart. That can only follow clarity in the mind. Now what the Pas Lechem says is actually synonymous with the, the very central fulcrum of the Chabad philosophy. The philosophy of the Alter Rebbe was that if ordinary people, even people who couldn't actually experience spiritual realm or reality, ordinary people, people who understand the taste of food, sweet or pungent aromas, people who can appreciate sensual pleasure and delight, people who can't really appreciate the delights of the soul. Mm-hmm. People like, like you and I. If we can understand on some level, in some way, but understand a spiritual concept well, it will necessarily filter through to our emotional dimension. It will engender an emotional response. If you have no information about something, you will not react emotionally. Why would you? Who cares? If information is very, very uh, well documented, you know about something, but it's something you don't really care about, well, then the information is in the realm of my mind. I can have a collection of facts and figures that doesn't mean anything to me. And yet, if I can ruminate on something, and I can think about something, until I begin to identify with that thing, what we have here is a fusing of the two. That that which is understood by the mind will ultimately be appreciated by the heart. So, what the Pas Lechem is telling us is that what the Neder Bakaydish kind of put together, Yisbaru, Vyas Amsu, is a little bit of a, it's a challenge, it's like a mix over here. He says, actually, there's two things going on here. There's a, a cerebral activity which will lead to an, an ability to identify with something, to appreciate the truth of something, that it becomes my truth, an objective truth and become my truth in my heart. All right, this is very interesting. We didn't hear about this before, really. So... What we're, what we're now, I think, learning for the first time in this book is that in order for faith ideas to become translated into confidence, full trust and reliance on somebody else, what we're really talking about is things that will leave the arena of the mind to filter into the arena of the heart. So I get emotional about it. And then something really strange happens. Okay.
So now I know I need to, I need to get emotional about it. I need to have an attachment to these ideas. It can't just be understood. And that will bring me to perfect trust. And there are five. Five prefaces. Okay, you roll your sleeves up. Say, okay, let's, let's get to it. We're going to be learning five new things. And once we identify with these things, we can build our trust structure. Achas mehem. One is, Sheyamin v'yizborer etzloi hiskaptus ha-shivin yonim belikim. That you have to believe and understand with clarity the seven things which we talked about that are only found in God. That when you have a proverbial collection, somebody who possesses all of these different things, when they're all present, you talk in then it is possible to place your trust. Yeah, I just mentioned them about like two sentences ago. Yeah, I just mentioned these seven things. And I, uh, very strange translations here in the Kihat, they said, I commented on them. All right. The, the art school translation says, I demonstrated. To me, it seems that the word lahoir is to, 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 to note, to point out, to note. But okay, maybe they're demonstrated or they're. Uh, they're commented on that. They're, they're noted. These things which were noted, I noted these things. But Meshin is dominantly with whatever was available for, to me from the verses. Whatever was available to me? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> the whole of the Torah was available to him. Was there a sale on certain verses? He can only afford half price? What does that mean? <laughs> the art school, he renders it as the selection of verses that came to mind. Are you kidding? You've been in a Bein Abachai, just like uh, sat down, hey, a couple of things came to mind. You know, if I was a betting man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet that Rabbein Abachai has spent a long time writing this book. This is his magnum opus. In fact, it's his only published work. You're talking about a man who was a great religious leader, a great spiritual force in, in, in his community, that part of the world at his time, a thousand years ago. As a person was a Dayan. He was responsible for the administration of justice, adjudication of law, rendering decisions on issues that are both social, monetary, ritual, dealing with people and and Shilas. And he gave sermons. I sometimes imagine in my mind's eye that maybe Rabbeinu Bechaya's sermons were about trust. Maybe this is what he focused on. Maybe this was the, the passion of his life. Or at least his sermons were about chovat halvavot, about the obligations of the heart. He must have spoken about awe and reverence for Hashem. He must have spoken about love for Hashem. I mean, it's not by accident that a part of a book, because really it's a part of a book, it's one gate, 
Shara Betochen is one gate of his larger compendium called Chovat Halavavot. It's not an accident that this was not only translated, but has been copiously studied for just about a thousand years now. I cannot believe that he just, uh, whatever came to mind, I just jotted some things down. Especially because in the commentary, at the end of the last chapter, we had a discussion about why he didn't bring more verses. And why these verses sufficed. And Abed Abachaya himself says that the verses that he brought were just to serve as a, like a memory tool. So I don't know if it means it's just verses that came to mind, the verses that were available. Nizdam and Liman Akosov has to have some kind of deeper meaning, the things that things that were available, but not because I didn't know the other verses. These were the verses that came to me, that came to me for a particular purpose. So these verses that came to me for a particular purpose, he says, so that's why I talked about these seven ideas, these seven criteria, buttressed with these verses. Okay, so what is going on here? I mean, seriously, we, we talked about these seven things in quite a bit of detail. <laughs> I know, okay, I spent a little more time than everybody else does on it, fine. We went through them, quality by quality, or, you know, we went through the criteria. And Rebbeinu Bechaya himself already concluded in saying that once this becomes clear to you, once you recognize the truth of these ideas, so then you'll be on your way to achieving betachan, yiftach bai. You'll, you'll trust in him. You must say love. You'll be given over to him. Oh, you have to contemplate it? Okay, so contemplate it. Rebbeinu <laughs> Bechaya doesn't have to repeat it a second time. He could maybe have said, don't move on. Before you go to chapter 3, please read chapter 2 another 5 or 6 times. Spend time conversing about this chapter. Talk to your wife, talk to your friend, talk to your rabbi, talk to, uh, talk to whoever you want. Talk to your pupils, your circle of influence. Think about this and then think about it some more. And then when you have it really clear and you've reviewed it and discussed it and articulated it in various forms and iterations, then you're ready to go forward. I mean, I really thought we're starting chapter 3, this is going to be new material. But in fact, Rabbeinu Bechaya begins chapter 3 after telling me a whole story about Beiruron and Amitosan of Chomish, that I have to have clarity. I have to really feel or identify with these five prefaces in order for me to develop the concept of Betochen. I want to build my Betochen. I'm all ready to go. And he says, yeah, so the first thing is, we need to go back to the seven things we talked about. And you have to make sure, Shayamin, you should believe these things, these Boreretzlai, and then they have to become clear to you. Oh, so for this he's going to repeat all seven things again? I don't mean to belabor the point, but this is like mind-boggling. Why do they keep reading this book? Why did people have such a devotion to it? <laughs> he just repeats himself. Says the same thing in as many words. There has to be something deeper going on here. 
So all of this brought me to the point where I realized that, that I'm clearly, like, I'm missing the forest for the trees. There's, there's, something, there's something going on here in these three sentences, which is extremely profound, extremely important. And if, if I, I didn't figure this out, if we didn't have clarity of what Rabbeinu B'chai just said here, I don't think we can move forward successfully. So the good news is that, thank God, I really think I have come to a, an understanding. So this is how it goes. But first with a little question. The question is, here Rabbeinu B'chai says, Yamin, Vizbarer. You have to believe it, and you have to get clear about it. Believe it and get clear about it. So the Nedab HaKadosh says, believe it. Believe it refers to the verses that were quoted. Whatever is quoted from the verses, Shayamin, those are the things you believe. We believe in the scripture. And then... The things that we understand. That's not just believing, that's clarifying. So I have to, I have to believe it, meaning lean on the scripture. I have to have clarity. That's common sense. That's logic. First comes believing. And then will come the clarity. And then, when that happens, we'll be able to build betachem. And I'm saying to myself, so belief isn't enough, but logic is going to lead me to trust? Trust is about my relationship with God. You mean my relationship with God that is faith-based is not as powerful as my relationship with God that's rational? Really? We believe that faith is something intrinsic. People believe in God because, because there really is a God. I talked about this in a previous episode. Pew just released this extraordinary study about how people are turning away from religion in droves. Shocking statistics. Less than 46% of people who are polled in North America believe in organized religion. Less than 46%. It means we've lost more than half the population. And that's growing. Yet at the same time, 80% of people professed faith in a higher power. In other words... They don't understand or felt offended by whatever religious leadership or teachers they've come in contact with in the past. But that doesn't mean they don't believe in God. They just don't understand it. They don't really, they can't articulate it. But they believe in God. They believe in a higher power. Belief in a higher power means that the world isn't an accident. That there is some kind of force or power that is directing things that cares about you. You're believing in this higher power. 80% is an astounding number. It's a 30 plus percent jump. It's a huge jump. Why don't people believe in God? 
as I described in the previous, one of the previous episodes, the people who believe in random evolution or survival of the fittest believe that the various things we have, we have because we need them. We used to have a tail. We got rid of the tail because the tail didn't do anything for us. It just hindered us. So over millions of years, it shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until it became a coxbone. Who needs a tail? It's stupid. Of course, that led them to the mystery of the appendix. Why is the appendix there? After so many millions of years of random evolution, of successive generations modifying, where the biology modifies itself and perfects itself, why did it leave that dumb appendix? <laughs> Until a couple of decades ago, after cutting out people's appendixes for no good reason, they suddenly discovered the appendix does something very important. Oh, from the appendix. There are certain healthy bacteria, as I understand it, that is emitted into the stomach or into the colon that allows for the complete digestion or decomposition of matter that's there that has to get pushed out. Oh, so it has a purpose. All of a sudden, they said, this business of cutting out appendixes for no good reason is not a very good idea. Oh, okay. We're back to random evolution. We've solved what they call the spandrel. <laughs> this is like, spandrel is a name for, for the empty space under the stairs. So what do you do in your home with the space under the stairs? It's called, we call it dead space. It's like an accident. Well, it's not really an accident, but it's just, you need to have stairs, and underneath the stairs invariably is gonna be dead space. So people create closets, some of which is just crawl space. Doesn't really get used. You have to be very, very creative to use every inch of space to say it's a spandrel. You need to get upstairs. Stairs are stairs, so that's what it is. What are you going to do? In other words, that there are certain spandrels. This is the theory they float. There are spandrels, things that evolve by accident. Of course, the great big question is a study like Pew that says 80% of people believe in a higher power. Why? What does it do for people? Oh, it's great for religious leadership. It enables them to kind of disseminate the opiate of the masses and bewitch everybody and control everybody. And you know, you know religion is just about money and about religious leaders controlling people. Right, of course. But why do the people embrace it? And if the people aren't engaged in a religion, they aren't using it as a crutch for their problems, which, of course, you know and I know it's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. It's all false. It's just like smart people taking advantage of dumb people, right? But educated people don't believe in this. They don't have any time for religion. Yeah, it's funny. So, so why are people professing faith in a higher power? This is what the Baal Shem Tov called evidence of the atmospheric reality, or the atmospheric truth, the Eur HaSoyvev. He said, the reality is that God is everywhere. The reality is that inside us is a piece of God. It's called an Ashama, a soul. And the peace of God feels God. So that's what Emuna is. Emuna has to be nurtured. Emuna is something natural. We all have it. And when we learn about godly things, and when we engage in godly activities, and especially when we listen to the word of Hashem, it brings forth our emunah. 
not on our terms, on God's terms. Because a relationship with God has to be had on God's terms. Because if we are created in God's image, then we need to sort of match and marry ourselves to that image to try to live up to the potential that God has placed in us. If, however, we are idolaters creating an image of God as a reflection of ourselves, then we have created the God of our own minds, the God of our own comfort, the God that makes us feel good. So we ultimately are worshiping our own ideas, our own isms, our own concepts, our own idols. It doesn't have to be a statue, a mountain, or a tree to be idolatry. If you worship power, if you worship science, if you worship politics, if you worship any kind of philosophy, to the point that if these things get in the way of your own welfare, you're willing to sacrifice for them because you believe them to be a greater truth, then that's become your idol. Communism isn't godless. It's idolatry. Communism is a very powerful faith system. Not different than the worship of the Baal. Worshipping the idea of equanimity amongst people, the idea of, of, of eliminating certain classes, the idea, uh, the idea that things are intrinsically rotten and therefore the systems, the structures have to be collapsed, and, and that this becomes something which we pursue with a fanatical zeal and in pursuit of human rights. Stalin killed 100 million people together with Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and the other monsters of the communist revolutions because it became a religion. And it didn't bring anybody happiness. Well, maybe the party bosses. So why do 80% of people profess faith in God? The answer is because, because there's something inside them. <laughs> why is it 20% of people who don't? Because we live in a very dark world where Hashem conceals His presence and there's something called the Yetzirah, an evil inclination, and people are selfish and mean and capricious. So uh, it's not surprising to me that 20% don't believe this. What's surprising to me is 80% don't believe And this is what's really bothering me. Because Rabbeinu B'chayah says, Shayamin, you have to believe the Yisborer, and it will become clear. And Yisborer, as the Nedab HaKadosh says, that Yamin refers to the verses, to the scripture, but Yisborer refers to the logic, by the way, previously articulated. We're not going to re-articulate it. We're going to make it even more logical. Rabbeinu B'chayah is not going to be quoting verses now as much. He's going to be driving home the points on a logical or rational level. That's going to be more powerful than faith. That's going to lead us to trust. So, so let, me, let me use a frame to explain what's bothering me. So just like I, I want to frame it with something else. It happens to be timely if you... A Jew who studies the weekly Torah portion, so it's Parshas Vayera, and we read about the Brit Milah, which freely translated as circumcision. I hate that translation. Circumcision is a medical process. It's a removal of a piece of skin. This is not what it's about. I'm not pro-circumcision or anti-circumcision. I, I, I frankly don't care what, what people choose to do or not to do insofar as a surgical process is concerned. I am a pro 
relationship with Hashem. I believe that Jewish people should be allowed to practice their religion freely, as should all people. And if we have been practicing Brit Milah for 37 centuries, please leave us alone. Don't give me, give me stories of it harming my children. We seem to have done quite well. No other faith system has produced more prodigious minds. No other faith system has resulted in more development of, of, of ability and talent. I mean, go look at how many Nobel Prizes. Less than 1% of the world's population has won, including the last uh, round of Nobel winners. Bunch of Jews included again. There's something to that. <laughs> I once had this argument, the culture war, on 6.40 uh, a.m. This is, you know, big talk, talk, talk radio station. And uh, I w it was about circumcision. So this um, protagonist, the guy sitting across from me, he's, he's, um, his mother's Jewish. He's Jewish, of course. But he's an atheist, vowed atheist. And he says, um, I, I said to him, like, I, I, I'm not pro or against the scientific or medical process. I'm asking you to not get in the way of my relationship with God. He says, well, we need to do research to see how it affects children. I said, were you circumcised? But did you have a Brit Milah at eight days old? He says, yes. I said, mm, do you think that you're negatively or adversely affected because of it? Well, I don't know. I said, I, you seem very confident. You seem very sure of yourself. I said, how do you propose to beat a 37-century case study of success? What, what, are you, what are you going to study before you allow me to do a brit milah on my children? I said, if you care about children, then you will not try to outlaw a brit milah because we will not stop performing this mitzvah. You'll be endangering our children by outlawing us because it will only force us to go underground that will put our children in danger. Anyway, this is Brit Milah monologue. So there's a, a medrash. It's a medrash that's found in Bereshis Rabbah, in the 55th chapter, in Parshas Vayera, where Avram Avinu has a Brit Milah at the end of Parshas Lech Lecha, together with Yishmael, who at the time is 13 years old, who's not Jewish, because his mother's not Jewish. But in Parshas Vayera, Yitzchak, Isaac is born to Sarah. Sarah's Jewish, so Isaac is Jewish. Yitzchak's Jewish. And he has a Brit Milah at eight days old. And the Medrash records a very interesting conversation that ensued, or a point of contention that came up continuously for the time that Yishmael and Yitzchak were living under the same roof. They would kind of try to best one another. They would get into these arguments. So Yishmael says, I'm more dear, more cherished in God's eyes. I got a brismila at 13 years old. <laughs> that's, that's commitment. That's sacrifice. And Yitzchak says, no, 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 no. I'm more cherished than you. Why? Because I received my Brit Milah at eight days old. So the Mepharshim say, what's going on here? What does that mean? You're more cherished because you got that eight days old? I mean, it makes sense what Yishmael is saying. Logically, Yishmael is saying, I made the decision. 
Nobody forced me into anything. My father said, this is what we want to do. This is what God told me. This is what God wants of us. And I said, hmm, it's God wants of us. Okay, I'm in. And it was painful. He says, you don't have a decision to make. It just happened. <laughs> but as soon as you knew who you are, you already had a brismila, and it was all healed. So, so what does it mean? What is Yitzchak saying? So the Efeiter says, because a mitzvah, b'shayta adaf, a mitzvah in its right time is, is more exquisite. Okay, but like on a, on a logical level, it's very hard to understand this. So there's an edited talk from the Rebbe. It's found in the Sichas, the 25th volume of the Kutasichas, found on page 86. And after discussing the traditional approach to understanding this medrash, the Rebbe says that this is perhaps the resolution. Let us look back at the content. What is the inner meaning of a Brit Milah? In the language of the scripture itself. The scripture states, and this is found in the Torah portion of Lech Lecha, Genesis 17, verse 13, as well as in the previous verse, in verse 7. It says, V'hayta briti bivsarchem. My covenant shall be sealed onto your flesh, librit olam, as an eternal covenant. God says, my covenant, my covenant will be sealed onto your flesh. In other words, that this is a brit olam, this is an eternal bond that's being achieved. So what, is a, what, what does it mean, a, a brit? What does it mean, a, a bond, a, a, a covenant? So here's an easy way to understand a covenant. Like, like marriage is a covenant. Okay, you, you love each other? You love each other, so, so live together. What's, what do you have to get married for? Just so the religious guy can make money on you? <laughs> The caterer can have a business. You want to live together, live together. You love each other, so good. Knock yourselves out. Why do you have to ratify it with marriage? Nah, I need need to get married. Why? Because people somehow intrinsically understand that if they're going to have a lasting relationship, it can't merely be reflective of the way I feel now. The way I feel now is... It's the way I feel now, but where's the proof that it's lasting? Meaning, what happens when we don't like each other? What happens when, when we're not in this good place? What happens then? Do we just go separate ways? So I say, no, we're going to make a covenant. And the covenant is that we make this unviolable bond to each other, commitment to each other, promise to each other, oath to each other. We're going to stick it out. Marriage is about sticking it out. Every marriage has ups and downs. That's the nature of marriage. Every relationship has ups and downs, but many relationships simply fade away. Hopefully marriages don't. Many years ago, I had an epiphany of, the, of how sick and twisted our society is. You know, I was at a wedding, and people were invited to toast the bride and the groom. So a young man got up and he said, I want to toast you with happiness for as long as you're together. And I was like, wow. So society 
doesn't even appreciate the idea that marriage is supposed to last. <laughs> it's not even supposed to last. It's like the Hollywood reality has become people's reality. You know, they call in Israel, the guy thinks he's in a movie set. What do you mean for as long as it's going to last? What do you have to get married for? So marriage is a form of a covenant. It's a commitment. It's like a peace treaty. You know, countries make these treaties. Sometimes they get broken. Sometimes marriages get broken. The tragedy is that people don't value marriage any longer. The, pr the problem is that the people don't even see what's wrong with breaking a marriage. But yes, a marriage can be broken. And in fact, the, the, the very notion that it can be broken from a Jewish perspective forces me to work on my marriage, not take it for granted. Because invariably, things we take for granted, it's always going to be there for us. Maybe it won't always be there for us. Well, it'll be there for us if we try to work on it, if we care enough about it. So the possibility of the dissolution of a marriage, which Judaism believes in, actually contributes toward the healthy maintenance of the marriage. So that's all about covenants that people make, and of course covenants that people make whilst they may be very powerful and enable people to overcome stormy times. In the end, there's no guarantee that they last. But God's covenant is a Brit Olam because it's not our covenant with God. It's God's covenant with us. And therefore the Rebbe explains, because this is about God's covenant with us rather than our covenant with Him, when a person does something out of his or her own volition, when you decide to make a commitment, it's based on your understanding, your appreciation of the facts as they are or seem to be, your commitment to something. There's no guarantee that it's going to last because... Nothing that's made by people lasts forever. The only thing that's eternal is God. So if, if we make the covenant, if it's our decision, there's a, a limitation, an expiration of, of, of its devotion, of its profundity. Maybe you can't undo the technicality Maybe you can, but it's our bond, our commitment, which is incidentally, the Rebbe says, why Avraham Avinu didn't want to do a Brit Milo by himself because he couldn't do it again, and he wanted to do it as God's command. So Yitzchak says to Yishmol, because my bond with God is not based on my understanding. It's not based on the superficiality of me or my human persona. It's not my covenant with God. It's Brit Olam, it's God's covenant with me. So as soon as I was healthy enough, which Torah deems to be at eight days, there was a Brit Milah. We're not studying this Sikha right now. I'm really using it as a frame. And the, the point of the frame is this. Faith in Hashem is almost because there's a piece of God in us. If I can nurture that flame, if I can bring forth those, those, those feelings or, or ideas, that sentiment, which isn't rational per se, or even emotional, 
Because rationality or emotions are my emotions or what my mind can understand. This is a sentiment which was beyond. Belief is not what I see. I know I call today's class seeing is believing. I'll get back to that soon. But on the surface, that's a ridiculous statement. Seeing is seeing. I see with my eye. I cannot see with my ear. Never. Never happened. But I can hear with my ear. So I have different ways of relating to things. I know something is real when I can see it or when I can hear it. I can know something by virtue of the taste or aroma that it has. These are different senses, different ways I relate to different things. I cannot see the difference between salt and sugar. I can sure taste it. I can't hear the difference. I can't necessarily feel the difference. I can taste it though. Very profoundly. So you taste with your tongue, you hear with your ear, you see with your eye, you touch with your body, you understand with your mind, you feel with your heart, proverbially speaking, and you believe with your soul. My dear friends, the body is not eternal, it is ephemeral. The body at some point isn't anymore. At some point, people are not seeing or tasting hearing or touching, but the soul, it lasts forever. So what's more powerful? Things I understand or that which I believe in? Why would Rabbeinu Bachaya say that I'm going to go back to these seven things, sheyamin, so you should want to believe them, and that's based on the scripture, which he's not going to spend so much emphasis on in this chapter, it'll become clear to you rationally, logically. Well, Pas Lechem says, once it becomes clear to you, you start to feel it too. That's actually the key. So what we need to understand then, is the difference between are we frozen? It's rather odd. I see a frozen screen. Uh, if anybody out there is watching and has my number, you want to let me know if this is still going? Oh, okay, Michael David, I'm still live. Good. With a frozen screen. Okay. So, we have to understand the difference then between faith and between trust to get this. All right, so let me introduce you to something very interesting. In the beginning of the codes of Jewish law, very beginning, we have before the, what's known today as the Shulchan Aruch, we have something which is called the Tur. Rabbeinu Yaakov Balaturim was the first one to put the system together as we know it today, which, is, which refers to the, the codes that govern uh, Jewish life. And the first section of the code of Jewish law and of the Arba Turim is called Erechaim. So in the very first chapter, it speaks about how we should start our day. And in Simon Aleph, subsection 
5. It says like this, There are certain portions of Scripture which are good, effective. We should read them daily. One of them, it says, is Parshat Haman. We should read the portion, the Torah's narrative of the manna. The Torah doesn't tell us why. The Bet Yosef says, Parshat Haman, the reason we should read Parshat Haman is Kedei Sheya'amin, so that we will believe. Shekol Mizon Notav, that all of a person's sustenance, what we call prosperity. Boyan Le'i come by divine design. In other words, that the manna becomes an effective way for us to know that Hashem is giving us our parnasa. He provided for us then, He provides for us today. What exactly is the logic of reading about God's miracles in antiquity and that's supposed to inform us or make us believe that God's going to provide for us today? So interestingly, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't say this, the big Shulchan Aruch, but in the codes that were written by Rabbi Mordechai Yafi in the 16th century, in the Levush, 17th century actually, the, the, it was written concurrently to the Shulchan Aruch. The Levush, Hatcheles as it's called, following the order, the system of the Tur, quotes this idea, Uparsha Taman, and the Levush expands on this, and he explains. He says, the reason is, so that a person will believe, believe, that everything that a person receives, insofar as parnasa or sustenance, is concerned, is by divine design. How do we know that? Because that's the way it was with the manna. That Hashem watched over that God made sure that everybody got the same measurement. Now, it's not really clear how that tells us that Hashem provides for everybody by His divine design. But the Alter Rebbe in Shulchan Aruch adds a few very interesting words. He says, You should read the Torah portion that describes the narrative of the manna so you know that everything comes by divine design. And he says, That God supervised. To give each person a measure legal golet to all of the souls that had to be sustained in the home. And here the Alter Rebbe does something interesting. He inserts the verse, the actual verse of the Torah. So the verse of the Torah, which is found in Exodus 16, verse 18 is, Vayimodu ba'omer, they measured with a with a container, with a bowl, a chalice, the size of an omer. The one who collected more manna and the one who collected less manna did not end up with different amounts of manna. 
Now, I understand that God's sustaining us and providing from heaven. That's nice. Why did God ordain it that every person should get exactly the same amount of manna? You had to go out and collect it. If you didn't collect it, you wouldn't have the food. And yet, everybody ended up with the exact same amount. So the chalice or bowl you used to collect the manna was an omer, but if you took more, it wasn't evident. If you took less, it wasn't evident. In other words, this becomes a metaphor for going to work. You need to do your part. Who decides in the end how much you will have? God decided and decides. In other words, the manna becomes a paradigm for human effort. Our job is to go and collect the parnasa, doing what we must, as Rabbeinu Baha'i will describe later on. And yet, we believe that everything is by divine design. We believe it. And this is a very important thing to be mindful of at all times. As Rabbeinu Avraham Azulai says in his notes, his glosses on the Levush, he says, when you recite these words, you can pray and you can beseech heaven. That God should give you your sustenance, your prosperity, that which you need to provide for your family, that it should come easily without pain and duress, that it should come in an honorable way without shame and embarrassment, that it should come through kosher, honest, Business conducted with integrity, not, God forbid, the opposite. So that you can serve Hashem without worries, without anxiety, just as God provided for our ancestors in the desert. All right, very nice. So you read these verses, and it helps you have faith. It nurtures your faith. I believe in the Torah. I believe in the verses. If God could nourish and provide for people, then He can nourish and provide for people today as well. Very nice. All seems to add up. The Alter Rebbe embarked on a very ambitious project towards the end of his life. Unfortunately, he did not succeed in getting very far. He began to rewrite the entirety of the Shulchan Aruch, but he only got four chapters in. In the second version of the Shulchan Aruch, the Alter Rebbe changes his tune. He says, Uparshat Haman, the reading of the Parsha of Man, reading about the manna, Livtoyach Bahashem, doesn't say Sheyamin, doesn't speak about faith, he speaks about trust, trusting in Hashem. God who gave sustenance on a daily basis. Doesn't talk about the right amount, the same amount. Changes, not only doesn't repeat himself, quoting that verse, doesn't even invoke the logic or explanation of the lavush. The Bet Yosef in his commentary on the, on the um, tour says, 
emphasize this is about belief, here the Altarebbe doesn't speak about belief. Here the Altarebbe speaks about the concept of trust. Only focuses on trust. What's going on here? Why this change? So we're not going to fully answer this question today. That's our good fortune that the Rebbe answered this question in, a, in an extraordinary way, in an edited sicha. I will share with you, though, a snippet, a portion of that particular sicha as it's relevant to us. The Rebbe highlights the difference, the astounding distinction between the two versions. And he says that there's a world of difference between the two. Emuna, faith means I believe everything comes from God. I believe that regardless of my efforts, success will come my way because God ordains it to be. I believe that regardless of my efforts, if God does not wish it to be successful, it won't be. In the end, everything's in God's hands. And that God will provide. Betochen is not just believing that prosperity comes from a higher place. Betochen, trust means I rely on God. I go to my business, my vocation, my profession with not a worry or a shred of anxiety because I'm absolutely certain that God will provide devar yom biyomo. Do you remember several episodes ago I shared with you the incredible words of Rabbeinu Bechaya Bar Osher, Rabbeinu Bechaya II, who says that when God took the Jewish people into the Reed Sea, it didn't divide in half, but rather the waters were dividing just before them. They had to keep walking into the ocean. He describes in detail how there was no proverbial security. No guarantees for tomorrow. They were always waiting for the next moment. And that was delivered by God. For 40 years, God kept us on a very, very short leash. He gave us all the food we needed for today. And that's it. Erev Shabbat, you got a double portion. Erev Yom Tov, you couldn't go out, you got a double portion. But that's it. There were no pantries. There were no storehouses. You couldn't rely on the food that's been put away. You had to rely on God. Then as Rabbeinu Bachai and Kada Kemach explains, this was about inculcating within us a sense of trust. Don't only believe that God can and does provide, trust that He will provide. Rely on Him. You can believe and have lots of anxiety. If you trust You'll have no worries at all. As we've discussed in great detail over many of the previous episodes. It's a very different idea. The fact that everybody got the same amount is indicative of this notion that in the end, this idea that God provides. So if you work five extra hours in your business, you might not come out with five times as much profit. And if you ended up leaving your business or spending less time at the office because you had an obligation. 
an obligation to God to pray, an obligation to a friend to be there when they needed him for you. In the end, we believe that it comes from God. You must do your part. Don't be lazy. Don't sit on your hands and say, hey, God, just rain it down on us. We need to do everything within our ability. That's reasonable. And we'll talk about that later, why Hashem ordains it that way. But in the end, it comes from Hashem. That's a belief thing. That's a faith thing. That's believing in Hashgach Prat's divine design. Trust means there are no worries. And the Rebbe suggests that Bitochen and Emuna, faith and trust, are intrinsically different in that faith is always there. A person is a believing person. Whereas the trust is something one must muster at a particular time. As the Maharal of Prague says in his Sefer Nesivot Olam, the ways of the world in the Tiva Bitachon, the pathway of Bitachon, he says, he says, B'tach Ba'ashem midaber b'shat ma'aseh, at the time, at the time you're going to your business, at the time you're getting involved in something, and the worries and the anxieties start to gnaw at you and eat away at your foundations. Yosim Hashem. Exactly at that moment, you place your full trust and reliance on God and don't allow the worries to get to you. He says, Dovr Zerukh it's like a prayer. <laughs> Except you're not in the synagogue. And you're not praying per se, you're just trusting. Trusting in God is like a prayer. At that time, at that time, you place your reliance, your trust in God. That He will help you in everything you need. Maral goes on to explain a beautiful verse in the 29th chapter. Of the book of Proverbs, it says, that a person's tremor, a person's fears will cause him to stumble. But by Teach Ba'ashem of the person who places his or her trust in God will be safe, will be protected. He says, when a person becomes fearful, then this is indicative of a weakening or a lack of trust in Hashem. So, what's the answer? The answer is strengthen yourself in Betachen at that time. You don't believe in God sometimes. Believing person believes in God always. Betochen is something that's peaked or brought to the fore at a particular time. Now, of course, as the Rebbe points out in the footnote, obviously, the person who trusts in Hashem is always going to trust in Hashem. But the point is, you need to animate and activate that trust at a particular time when you're involved in the world, the business world, the world of commerce, when it's that dog-eat-dog environment. You have to trust God, not worry. When your person is in a time of great sorrow, of great difficulty, instead of becoming demoralized, instead of giving up hope, instead of saying, may I in Yavu Ezri, where will my help come from? Instead, a Jew should respond and say, as King David puts it in Psalm 130, 21, Ezri my help comes from God. And as we learned many times already, that betochen, that security, that surety, that confidence, that trust that God will be there for me becomes the vehicle to access and deliver my blessings. So betochen is not just being mindful of something. Betochen is not just knowing about something. Betochen is about feeling it in your heart. Several episodes ago, I shared with you 
a fascinating mimer, a Hasidic discourse, profound rumination from the Alter Rebbe that's found in the Biyuri Hazoyer, the explanations on Zohar. It's a mimer of the Alter Rebbe that's documented by his eldest son and successor, the Mitle Rebbe. And the upshot is that Midat HaBetachon is a reflection of one's love for Hashem, one's reverence, one's awe for Hashem. In the language of the Alter Rebbe, he says that the idea of having absolute trust in Hashem, Shoirish in Yonai, that the person's trust will be reflective of, a result of, the love, the emotional connection that he feels for Hashem. Al Derech Moshel, by means of a metaphor. That a person trusts that the fr- love his friend has for him is enduring. That his friend is a trusted friend. A trusted friend is a loving friend. The primary strength, the metal, the stamina of that trust is vested because there's a loving energy that punctuates the relationship. If there's no powerful love, then the trust isn't so, so pronounced. The trust isn't felt, doesn't pulsate with the same force. Habitochen Azed Alter Rebbe later says, who beginas hargoshas hayesh. You know, to love somebody, you have to feel that you are. As the Kabbalists put it, the person who's in love with God is not entirely subservient. He's yesh mishoev. I love God. There has to be an I. I'm in awe of God. There has to be an I. Oise yesh ava. This is a thing, this love. It's a yesh murgosh, the love is felt. If I'm not, who am I to love? If I am, I'm and I love. Because I am, I love. Clement Holly Dover, he's a somebody. In other words, the concept of bitochen is not in the realm of the intellect. It's in the realm of the emotions. Precisely because the intellect is objective, precisely because the intellect is something which is dispassionate and cool, precisely precisely because it's not me, it's an idea. I am grasping an idea. It's not me. It's not I. Love, reverence, awe, fear, that's me. I'm afraid of it. I love it. I'm in awe of it. It's a, it's a self-expression. It's all about self. In other words, bitochen is really to be found in the realm of emotion. If you will, bitochen is faith translated into an emotional connection to God. And because I trust God so strongly, that removes or consumes the emotion of fear. As Rebbe Levi once responded to somebody who said, why do we pray for fear in the high holidays? Fear is a terrible thing. Who wants fear? Fear immobilizes. Fear atrophies. It, it freezes. It disables. It causes dysfunction. Rebbe Levi said that there is one fear, one awe, which consumes all other fears. That's the fear, the awe that one has before Hashem. If I'm in awe of Hashem alone, 
I'm afraid of nothing else, as the Baal Shem Tev's father told him on his deathbed. He said, fear nothing but God alone. As the Friedrich Rebbe responded to a monstrous communist assassinator, a horrible individual, a person who killed people for pleasure, who placed a loaded gun to his temple. And the Friedrich Rebbe was extremely strident when he was arrested. Asked him how old he is, he made a calculation of the birth of the Alter Rebbe and told him that's how old he is, seeing himself as a continuation of the Chabad dynasty. He asked him, do you know where you, uh, what do you do for a living? I serve God in atheist, communist, Russia. He said, do you know where you are? He says, yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a place that doesn't need a mezuzah because a toilet and a stable and a jail doesn't need a mezuzah. And the man puts a gun to the Rebbe's head and he says, this little toy has made many people start talking. And the Friedrich Rebbe, without batting an eyelash, says, your little toy only frightens people who have many gods in one world. But I believe in many worlds and one God. Two worlds and one God. Your toys do not frighten me. The ability not to have anxiety. The ability not to be consumed with worry. The ability not to be ripped apart because of my emotional concern and angst but rather to be tranquil and placid, to be calm, cool, and collected with my betochen and Hashem. It's entirely an emotional pursuit. I can understand the Torah idea, but until it filters into my heart, I can never, ever experience betochen. In fact, as you may remember, the Alter Rebbe goes on in that Maimur to say that the greatest of tzaddikim, don't necessarily excel at betochen because they are in such a high level of subservience Self-expression doesn't really register for them. In the Biyuri Hazayar of the Rebbe de Tzemach Tzedek, he focuses on that uh, very same verse, that very same portion of the Zohar that says, Bitcho Ba'ashem Adei Ad, and he goes on to explain Adei Ad can mean eternity, trust in God for eternity, or he says Adei Ad can mean to a certain level, and he describes the level of Adei Ad as being the proverbial, metaphorical, anthropomorphical, emotional side of God, the midos, what's called zoda atzilus. But he says in the realm of divine intellect, their betachen doesn't exist because their person is a state, state of total subservience. This is a tzaddik who doesn't have a self anymore. This is a tzaddik who doesn't care about himself in a terrestrial or physical way. All he cares about is God. He's become entirely transparent. A tzaddik like that doesn't have betochen that everything will be good in the physical, literal way because he doesn't care about the physical, literal world. The Rebbe says that betochen, it only comes to a certain level. It's not possible for a person to express himself in a profound and powerful way when a person reaches the point of total subservience where there is no self where you're at a level of tachlis habitl, where a person goes where a person would transcend the level of loving God, because loving God means I am. But if a person can transcend it and go past the I, then he doesn't have the whole concept of betochen. He transcends betochen. Betochen's for us, my friends. For me and you. For people who are not capable of transcending self. For people who want to live a good, comfortable life in this world, yet serve Hashem. Because betochen shemuftach ba'ahavosi amiti, when you feel a sense of love for God, then there's a sense of closeness to God, there's a sense of I. 
But Yaakov, he says, for example, Yaakov seems to have a lack of betochen because kikotan. Yaakov is so subservient. He doesn't feel he deserves or even cares or wants anything. Later on in page Kuf Tzadik Aleph, I just highlighted a line. He says, Ba'avo. Avo is ava'im. This is the terminology that's used to describe the intellectual realm of divinity. You can't say betochen, he says. Ba'avo, in the level of avo, there's no pain. It's betochen. Page Kuf Tzadik Bezi says, Kishom you just cover yourself, immerse yourself in divinity. But he says that the metochen can reach and can be experienced by a person who is not betachlas habitl. A person for whom a person for whom the material reality is irrelevant. A person can't experience a sense of betochen. And that's why Yitzchak wants to bless Esau with goodness, because he thinks Yaakov doesn't need it. But the truth, my friends, is that we do need it. Because that's how we can make this world a godly place, by engaging with the material world. And that needs an emotional connection. All of this brings us back. All of this brings us back to the words of the Shara Betochen. Here's the point. Up until now, we've understood things. The understanding might even have stirred our faith. But in order for us to experience betochen, in order for us to be able to purge ourselves of any kind of anxiety, in order for us to experience tranquility and peace as we go through life, this has to be translated from the realm of faith from the cerebral platform of or perspective into the seat of the emotions. And that's what this is all about. So chapter 3, it's interesting to note, many have noted, as the Kihat edition notes right here, he says, you know, it's a funny thing. He's going to repeat these seven qualities, but the seven qualities are not going to be listed in the same order of the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, Rabbeinu Bechayi was speaking to our minds. Study of Torah stimulates our faith. Hearing the verses speak stirs our emuna, our belief in God. But now, this has to be designed to filter through to the heart because betochen is an emotional experience. And that's a different chapter. So yes, we will be revisiting the same seven qualities. And that's just one of five areas in which we have much effort to expend. A tremendous amount of work and toil to be able to achieve success, which we will achieve, Mir Hashem. But we have to realize and appreciate that betochen is about our emotions. Precisely because we have a healthy sense of self-awareness, precisely because we are, precisely because we love God, precisely because we're in awe of God, precisely because we have emotions, it's possible for us to experience the power of betochen. And with this, we are ready to proceed as we move in continuing to build still the foundation 
for what will be the ultimate structure of a betochen psyche, of a trust perspective that will, God willing, transform our lives forever. Thank you so much for joining. I hope you found this inspiring, illuminating, educational, <laughs> meaningful. Please like, share, and make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. God bless you. Have a beautiful day. Thank you.